Hello, everybody. How are you doing? Hey, I wanted to tell you, if you are in mid-Missouri this Saturday, that's January 12th, I'm going to be giving a talk on the history of beer and brewing in the state of Missouri at the Lohman Landing Building. And this is a fundraiser for the Friends of the Missouri State Museum. Uh, that's January 12th, this Saturday, from 5 to 8 p.m., 100 Jefferson Street in the scenic capital. Uh, tickets are $20 at the door, and that includes... You get a pint glass, a souvenir, and three pours of quality craft beer. So anyway, yeah, we're going to have uh, some uh, live music from the 19th century, a history of beer talk, that's me. Boulevard Brewing is one of the sponsors. Gumbo Bottoms Ale House and Patty Malone's Pub are also helping to sponsor the event. That's Tavern Talk at the Loman Landing in Jefferson City, Missouri, Saturday, January 12th, 5 to 8 p.m. I hope you can make it there. Now, here's just a sample of what I'll be talking about on Saturday night. The Greek historian Herodotus, who's called the father of history, he tells us that the Great Pyramids in Giza, built over 4,000 4, years ago, they were built by 100,000 slaves who labored constantly and were relieved every three months by a fresh gang. Herodotus doesn't say what happened to the old slaves. This is just, they only worked three months and then they were gone, so maybe they were killed. I don't know. He is, however, very, very wrong. King Khufu, the fourth dynasty ruler of Egypt, he had the royal responsibility for the commissioning of the Great Pyramids, did not have a vast body of slaves at his disposal. And even if he had, there's no way that 100,000 men could have been working simultaneously on one pyramid. Egyptologists have their own methods of calculating the numbers of workers employed at Giza, but most agree that the Great Pyramid was built by approximately 4,000 primary laborers that would have been quarry workers, haulers, and masons. And they would have been supported by 16 to 20,000 secondary workers. These were guys who built ramps, they made tools, they mixed mortar, and they provided backup services such as supplying food, clothing, fuel, etc. And this gives a total of 20 to 25,000 men laboring on each pyramid for 20 years or more. But these men were definitely not slaves, as has been so long taught to us and been so many times through our Judeo-Christian heritage been brought up. No, these men were workers. They were laborers. And we know this how? Well, we found records, or I should say Egyptologists have found records, because these men were paid, and they lived in quite nice little villages. They weren't slaves. They were paid laborers, and they were paid with beer. Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman. Thank you, Jessica, and hello, everybody. Welcome to the Brews Traveler. Thank you for finding us out here in the podcasting universe. If you noticed, a little different at the beginning, I didn't say this is episode whatever number because this is a redo 
from back on July 25th of 2017, and this is uh, about uh, brotherly love, monks and brewing in medieval Europe, and I hope you'll enjoy it. And there's a reason why I'm not doing a new show, and that is mainly I've got two interviews in the can left to go. And it's going to be another three weeks before I have a new interview. I'm going out to Colorado. I'm going to go hang out with my uh, buddy Bryant and his wife Deidre. She's my friend too. And then I'm going to go hang out with Jessica. And then I'm going to meet up with my buddy Brooks, uh, who's from Chicago, but he manages, uh, he has a business uh, that he has to tend to in Denver and Boulder. And so we're going to go to some of, they're going to take me around to some of their favorite craft breweries. And uh, I'm looking, very much looking forward to that. But anyway, like I said, I only have two interviews to go. There'll be three weeks before I get another interview to go. So I was going to have to give you something in between. And because Tony's still on the road and he hadn't had time to get something together for us, I thought, yeah, this will be a good week to do a history redo on the history of beer. And uh, I'm going to be talking about beer, as I said earlier in the program, Saturday night over at the Missouri State Museum. If you're in the sound of my voice and you're not stuck in a snowbank somewhere, come on over. Uh, we'd, love to, we'd love to have you as I uh, talk about brewing in Missouri and the history of beer and how we got to here. So that's the reason why we're doing this, and uh, I appreciate your patience. Uh, sorry, I don't have a fresh show in the can, but, uh, you know, these things happen. It's wintertime, the holidays. I just wasn't able to get out on the road. So that's enough for me. Here it is. Listen to it. It's history, brotherly love, monks and brewing in medieval Europe from July 25th of 2017. And I'll talk to you on the other side. Today's episode of History is brought to you in part by Fectal Beverage, distributors of fine craft beers including Boulevard, Mother's Dogfish Head, Ballast Point, and Santa Fe Brewing. Come by the pub this week and see what we have on tap. And please go over to iTunes on either your phone or your computer and give History a five-star review. It's easy. On your iPhone podcast app, search for History on your computer, open iTunes, click on Store, then search Podcast History, and either way, click on the moonshine jug that has history written on it, and then click on Reviews, and then write a review. It's that easy. Give us five stars and write whatever you like. Some of you have already done such, just like this review from somebody named Attack. This is a great podcast, but I think there needs to be more foul language. Well, thanks, Attack, and your review is duly noted, and you know what? I can absolutely do just that. And then there was this review from Loggerman, who wrote, nothing like listening to someone who is passionate about history and alcohol talk about the confluence of both. Listening to Tapman spin the tale along with some well-placed rants and pauses to pull on a cork or take a sip well, it makes you feel like you're at the pub drinking across from the man. Well, thanks, Lager Man, and here's a toast to you. I'm drinking Duvel Belgian Golden Ale from Belgium, all right? And this is from our friends at Fectal Beverage. It's bottle-conditioned. It's a delicious, delicious Belgian-style ale. I, I, uh, I suggest that you pick some up and try it for yourself, and you'll see why I'm drinking Belgian ale here in just a little bit. 
Also got an email from a listener. Here it is. Uh, Hi, Alan. Really enjoying the podcast, but... And you know, when any anybody, anytime somebody says but, everything before that was... Bull- anyway... <clears throat> This past episode was so depressing. Depressing. All of these writers who either drank themselves to death or committed suicide. It was too sad. Please, no more depressing subjects. Loving the podcast, etc., etc. Well, I guess I should just throw out that episode I was going to do about wine and the Spanish Inquisition then. Um... This person who wrote the email is a friend of mine, has been for a long time, and she knows I have a very dark sense of humor. But anyway, Faulkner didn't die from alcohol. He fell off a horse. He may have been drinking, but he didn't die for three years. And Tennessee Williams, he may have been drunk. He probably was when he choked on that nasal spray bottle cap. But it wasn't the alcohol that killed him. Not technically. So lighten the f*** up, Gladys. Her name in Gladys. I did tell a joke at the end of the podcast to cheer everybody up. So next time an episode makes you feel sad, go listen to a f***ing Colby Calais album or something. I can't listen to Colby Calais. I'm I'm pre-diabetic. One of the most influential men ever in the development of European Christianity has to be St. Benedict who founded his namesake monastic order in Italy during the early 6th century CE. Now, what we know about St. Benedict is mostly from primary sources that were written a century after his life and from his own rule of Benedict, which he wrote. Now, most of the stuff that we know that's not of his writing is of of anecdotal form, collected and transcribed during the papacy of Pope Gregory I, in the 7th century, about 50 years after St. Benedict's death. Before Benedict, Christian monasticism was based upon the ascetic teachings and examples of St. Anthony and St. Pacomius, both in Egypt circa 300 CE. Now, their teachings of monasticism emphasize a removal from the temptations of secular society and an isolation in the wilderness, only interacting with the outside world on a very limited basis. Benedict followed this ascetic path in his early days, but he found the existing practices to be lacking in regiment and continuity. And he knew that their manners were very diverse from his, and therefore that they would never agree together, as was written by Pope Gregory. So he separated from the others, and over the course of the rest of his life, he founded 12 monasteries in central Italy, including the great Benedictine monastery at Monte Cassino. Now, the orders of the monasteries were written down in a manuscript called the Rule of St. Benedict, which was supposedly dictated or written by Benedict in his own hand near the end of his life around 545 CE. Now, unlike his predecessors, practicing the monastic life, St. Benedict made provisions in his rules for interaction with the outside world, and specifically for dealing with guests who might come to the monastery. Outsiders were to be met with due courtesy by the abbot and his deputies, although interaction with the Cenobites, that is, the brethren of the community, were to be very minimal, with them only offering service and hospitality upon the order of the abbot. And part of that hospitality was to be food and drink, 
And drink in those early years in Italy, of course, was wine. So the brethren at Benedictine monasteries during the medieval period almost invariably cultivated a vineyard. But what of those monasteries of the Benedictine orders that sprung up in areas where viticulture was problematic? I'm talking about Northern Europe. Well, wine was much too expensive for the brethren to import and buy from others, and what little they could get they had to use for the Eucharist. So what did they do? <laughs> our friends in northern France, our Benedictine friends in northern France, in Belgium, and elsewhere in the north, well, guess what? They brewed beer. I'm Alan Tapman, and because no good story ever began with this one time we were eating a salad, this is history, the story of alcohol. Thank a Benedictine for spreading the hospitality of the early church across Western Europe. Even today, there are a multitude of worldwide Benedictine retreats where overnight guests, and you don't have to be Catholic, are welcome to enjoy solitude and relaxation. And while most of these retreats are not very fancy, they are modern amenities, clean and quiet. Hospitality is one of the core tenets of the Benedictine order. But in the days before modern transportation and the ease of acquiring different foods and drinks, the monks would have had to grow their and prepare their own food at the monastery. Consequently, vineyards, gardens, pastures, and the outbuildings associated with food processing would have all been present at these monasteries. Now, the Benedictines were not the only religious orders to make wine and beer in the medieval period. The Carmelites, the Templars, they all made wine. And the Carthusians, named after the Chartreuse Mountains, Carthus is the, I guess it's the Latin for Chartreuse. Anyway, is where St. Bruno established their first monastery in southeastern France. They not only made wine, but they also began uh, in the 18th century to make a distilled liqueur from herbs and plants called Chartreuse whose distinctive yellowish-green tint is where we get the name for the color chartreuse of the same name. I digress. But the key difference in the wine made by these other religious orders other than the Benedictines, well, the order itself may have not carried out the production of the wine, but only owned the vineyard, and they would have hired laborers employed by the religious order to do the work. But this was not so with the Benedictines. One of St. Benedict's directives in his rule was that all of the monks should earn their own keep and donate to helping the poor by the work of their own hands. Even today, this is the case with Benedictine monasteries around the world. Now, following the establishment of those first 12 monastic communities in central Italy, Benedictine monasteries popped up all over Europe each becoming known for making something, whether it was cheese or honey or wine, and in some places, beer. Some of the most famous wine-producing regions in France were greatly influenced by the work of the Benedictines, including Champagne, Champagne where Dom Perignon, a Benedictine, practiced his wine-making skills. And if you want to know more about that, Listen to episode 6, which was released December 27th of 2016. 
Other areas in France that were influenced by the Benedictines were Burgundy and Bordeaux, and in Germany, Rheingau and Franconia also had a heavy Benedictine influence. So, oh, I'm thirsty, man. Mm. This is really good beer. Duvel. I first had this last year at uh, Boulevardia in Kansas City. We were invited over by uh, our friend Adam Marinello, who's our uh, our sales rep here uh, through Fectal and uh, for Boulevard, and he invited us over last year. And Boulevardia, if you've ever get a chance to go, it's in Kansas City. It's held in June, and you can taste all of these different import and craft beers, not just what Boulevard is associated with or Duvel Brewing, but all of these different craft brews and import brews from around the United States, Canada, the world. There's some, and you get to, it's great. It's really great. You should check it out. Boulevardy, I'm sure if you go to Boulevard Beer Brewing's website, they've got something up about it. But like, again, it's held every year in June. We didn't go this year. But uh, we, we fully intend on going next. Anyway, it's Boulevardia. There's a little commercial for you guys. Uh, check it out if you ever get there. Anyway, where was I? Um, the medieval Benedictines. Okay, they're propagating viticulture through France and Germany. But it was really an offshoot of their orders that went into the direction of brewing beer. In 1098, at the Benedictine Abbey in Molemet, in Burgundy, and I think I'm saying that word right, uh, the abbot of the monastery there, Robert de Molemé, along with 20 followers, in order to avoid what they perceived to be the abbey's increasing wealth and overtly strong influence of the Burgundian aristocracy, they left that community to found a new monastery of their own in Citeux, near Dijon. They believed that the orders had strayed too far from the rules of St. Benedict, and a correction in the order needed to be made by reverting to an earlier form of Benedictine monasticism. Now, this new order was called the Cistercians, taking their name from Cistercium, the Latin word for the city or the town of Citeux in France. The reason that beer and the Cistercians became intertwined is pure geography. By the 11th century CE, most of the area known as the Wine Belt in Europe, that is where wine is produced and drank, were already heavily populated by established religious orders, and the Cistercians had to expand into areas where there was little influence by existing church disciplines. Consequently, those regions were to be found in Normandy, the low countries of Holland, Belgium, Flanders, the northern German states, Denmark and Sweden, England, Scotland, and Wales. In other words, those lands were in what is known as the Beer Belt. The Cistercians were not the first monks to brew beer. Who that honor goes to, we don't really know. But what we do know is that the monastery at St. Gall, located in Switzerland, in the town of Gallen, was established as a hermitage, a Christian hermitage, in the 7th century CE by Irish monk St. Columbus, 
or Calm, that's C-O-L-M in the Irish Gaelic. And it was one of the first monasteries in Northern Europe to strictly brew beer, perhaps a practice that Calm brought to the continent from his Celtic homeland. Now, when I say it was one of the first, it was the first recorded monastery in Northern Europe to be brewing beer. St. Gall, the monastery, was taken over by the Benedictines in the 9th century AD and at this time became a template for other monasteries to follow if they chose the path of brewing. The brethren at St. Maul brewed three different grades of beer. One beer, the strongest of which, was made for paying customers and travelers who stopped at the monastery to purchase. The second grade was made for the consumption of the brethren. Now, when I say the first one was a strong beer, it would have been probably around 10% alcohol. The second one, the middle grade, that would have been about 5%, and that was made for the consumption of the brethren and the other workers at the monastery. And the third grade was a small beer, of perhaps 2% alcohol, and that was known as charity beer, and that was given to the poor. Now, the Cistercians, they followed this same practice when they set up their breweries across Northern Europe. Another coincidence which contributed to the Cistercians moving into these more northerly lands, especially Britain and Ireland, was that one of the early fathers of the movement, a follower of Robert of Molamay, named Stephen Harding. Yeah, Stephen Harding. Sounds like somebody you'd meet on the street today. He was a member of an Anglo-Saxon noble family, who had lost everything just 30 years before the founding of the monastery at Sateau because of the Norman conquest of England. Harding, before he came to Molamay and met Robert, had been a traveling monk, a scholar, if you will, because his family had lost their lands in Dorset to the Normans, upon, and, and upon those lands was Sherborne Abbey, a Benedictine monastery where Harding had been a student, and it was under the patronage of his father. Now, Harding's lands, were the, they were seized by William the Conqueror and redistributed to his Norman knights that had helped him defeat King Harold at the Battle of Hastings and then had subsequently driven the Danes from northern England. So during his wandering days before arriving in France, Stephen Harding had traveled through northern England and Scotland and then on to the continent to Rome, where the Benedictine order then sent him to work under Robert at Molamay, and he left for Citeaux with his mentor. After Robert's death and the death of the next abbot at Citeaux, Stephen was elected abbot of the Cistercians. Now, while no single person is considered the founder of the Cistercian order, the shape of the order is thought and its rapid growth of the 12th century were arguably due to Harding's leadership. Insisting on simplicity in all aspects of monastic life, he was largely responsible for the severity of Cistercian architecture and the simple beauty of the order's liturgy. Now, it was during his tenure that the expansion of the Cistercian monasticism began in earnest. And, and Stephen, he sent forth some of his brethren to the lands where he had once traveled, namely Britain and Scotland. And from there, monks were sent out to establish monasteries in Wales and Ireland.
Mm. A funny side story. And again, I, somebody said, you talk about Ireland a lot. Wait, you know why I talk about Ireland a lot? It's because I know a lot about Ireland. But anyway, in, in County Kilkenny, there is a Cistercian, there's a ruin of a, yeah, a Cistercian Abbey. I need a drink. Oh, that Man, that's good. I'm going to have another one. Um, anyway, I can talk to you about this while I'm pouring my beer. In County Kilkenny, there is a Cistercian Abbey. It's a ruin called Jerpoint. And, and Jerpoint was established sometime in the early 14th century, and it's just a ruin. And there's a great guided tour there. The, uh, the Office of Public Works does a fantastic job with, uh, with, uh, with the uh, interpretation at the site. But so on one, there's all these ornate carvings on this colonnade that's around the courtyard. It's, it's a typical medieval courtyard. And, and the abbey uh, had four walls, and then they had this colonnade and the central courtyard. But there's these carvings on the colonnade. And one of the carvings is of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with the serpent. Now, so you can, now here's the thing that's funny about this. So you can imagine these, at these monks, they come here and they're establishing, and they hire local masons. They, they hire local stone carvers and artists. And these are Irish, right? There's the Irish that live here. They hire them to do the work. And they said, I want you to carve the picture of Adam and Eve in the, in the stone, uh, in the Garden of Eden with the serpent. Well, a Irish have no idea what a serpent looks like. They really don't. So you have this, you have this legless long body of a snake, of course, no legs, but it's got the head of a dog. <laughs> it's, 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 it's comical. But it just goes to show you, because there were no snakes in Ireland, they, and St. Patrick didn't run them out. If you listen to my, I tell all why there are no snakes in Ireland. There are no snakes in Ireland because the land bridge, uh, at the end of the Ice Age, when the ice retreated, there was no land bridge between England and Ireland where the asp could come across. That just didn't happen. So the snakes never made it to Ireland. All right, unless, you know, somebody now brings in a pet boa constrictor. That's another story. This beer is marvelous. Thanks, Andy Fechtel, for the, the suggestion. This is really good. And I, what is it alcohol-wise? It's 8.5%. Oh, yeah, okay, we're going to have a great, the, by the end of the show, I'm going to be, my head's going to be on the microphone. Ah, all right, back to the Cistercians. Um, the Cistercians, they saw themselves as Benedictines, albeit Reformed. They, didn't, they did not call themselves Cistercians. That name came along later. And from a very early stage, they acquired lands to develop and farm with their own hands, as had been instructed by St. Benedict. And many of these include vineyards in the southern areas, but as the order spread into the north, each abbey was largely autonomous, uh, except for a guiding charter that they all had to follow. And they were autonomous to do what they thought was best to make money in the area where they lived. So, hence, brewing. Everybody wanted to drink beer, 
stuff, you know? You know, so there it is. So hoping to attract these Cistercians who were very industrious to their lands, various nobles around Northern Europe would offer them undeveloped country, excuse me, undeveloped property in hopes that the monks could turn the wild into a social and economic hub on their lands. Damn. Sorry about that. I had cucumbers with my salad tonight. I love cucumbers, you know? I do. I love them. I've loved them since I was a kid, but they've always made me burp. Ugh, you know? <sighs> the things we do for food. By 1152, there were 333 Cistercian monasteries in Europe. By their peak in the 1300s, they were the most powerful religious order in Europe. And and the Cistercians, they reached their zenith, zenith of their influence in 1335 when a former Cistercian Benedictine was elected Pope, and that was Benedict Twelfth. Beer, like I said, everybody was drinking beer. It was an important part of the diet, not only for the monks, but for all of the people of medieval Europe. As I've discussed many times before, beer was much safer to consume than water or milk, as the brewing process and the alcohol in the beer acted as a retardant against bacteria. Beer was also a popular food during fasting periods, of which the early Christian liturgical calendar, it covered, fasting covered mo almost half of the days of the year. Now, beer was not a solid, therefore it's not a food, kind of like fish is not a meat. <laughs> and it could be consumed, beer could be consumed during periods of fasting when solid food and meals were not allowed, like you, know, you wouldn't eat during the day, you'd only eat when the sun went down, right? And while beer is mildly alcoholic, it was still a nutritious beverage and it could sustain the brethren through periods of not eating although they might have a little bit of a tipsy buzz on. So, beer is not a solid, therefore it's not a food, just like fish is not a meat. <laughs> you know us Catholics, we're always looking for loopholes. But all good things must come to an end. The Cistercians quickly declined beginning in the late 14th century. A new development emerged in clerical practice in Europe, and this is especially true in Britain, Britain Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, the mendicant orders, in which brethren adopted a life of poverty, traveling, and living in urban areas for the purposes of preaching, evangelization, and ministry, especially to the poor. At their foundation, these orders rejected the previously established monastic model of living, in one stable, isolated community where members worked at a trade known property in common, including land, buildings, and other wealth. The mendicants, they saw this as sinful, and they avoided owning property. They did not work at a trade, and they embraced a poor, often itinerant lifestyle. Now, out of the mendicant movement came two new orders that you're quite probably familiar with, and very well known today, the followers of St. Francis of Assisi, known as the Franciscans, and the Dominicans. Now, by the 16th century, the Cistercian movement, while not yet dead, was very sick. And the next blow came in the form of the Protestant Reformation 
In England and Scotland, the Church of England under Henry VIII, and the Calvinist movement in Scotland of John Knox had dissolved the majority of all Catholic monasteries, including those of the Cistercians, that by that time they were just barely limping along. Now on the continent, again, the Franciscans and Dominicans and another new order, the Jesuits, were dominating the hold on the Catholic faith. But one Cistercian monastery was still going strong. La Grande Trappe Abbey in Normandy, France. Feeling that the Cistercians, the reason they were failing, is because they had become too liberal in their way of life. One of the reasons the mendicants returned their back on the Benedictines and the Cistercians was they felt like they were too rich. They felt like they had made too much money. They, you know, they were invested in all this property and everything. And the monks in these uh, monasteries, they lived a very nice life compared to the poor, compared to the people that had nothing, right? And so that was one of the rejections for the monastic lifestyle in the late medieval period, excuse me, in Europe. So along come these monks at La Grande Trappe Abbey in Normandy. And as I said, they felt like that the Benedictines and the Cistercians had become too worldly. They'd become too entrapped in their property and their money and they, that they were raising at, at, through, their, through their monasteries. And they felt like reforms were needed. Now, so 1664, the abbot at La Grande Trappe in France, he decides to return to the initial reforms of the Cistercians from 1098. And his intent was to take the wayward order back to a truer form of Benedictine monasticism. And those people who followed, those monks who followed in the footsteps of the La Trappe Monastery were known as Trappist. The Trappist movement across Northern Europe had a hold on many of the Cistercians who were also felt the same way. The Cistercian movement had become fat, rich, and prideful. It was more about attainment of wealth. It was not about serving God and serving God's followers. And so the Trappist movement began to grow here in the 1600s. But guess what happened? Within 100 years things started to fall apart all over Northern Europe. Like the main order of Cistercians and the other Benedictines in France, the French Revolution and then the rule of the following, the rule of Napoleon, it created chaos for the Catholic Church. And lands were confiscated and monks were forced to flee, if not if, under the penalty of death. And in the process of all this happening in France, and other lands that Napoleon had conquered, they lost all of their money-making endeavors, including breweries and vineyards, etc., etc. Now, the Trappists, they scattered across Europe trying to find safe harbor, but many of them just moved into areas that Napoleon later conquered. Now, this wandering helped to spread the brethren into Belgium. And after Napoleon's defeat in 1815, 
the monks began returning to France. Those that stayed in Belgium, however, eventually separated from the rule of the French monks in order to form their own Belgian congregation of Trappist. And it is this school of the Benedictine evolution that is today most famous for the brewing of beer. Mm. Oh man, this is good stuff. By the 19th century, as Protestantism had spread over nearly all of Northern Europe, much of it coming in the wake of wars of religion of the 17th and 18th centuries, including the Thirty Years' War, uh, the beer-brewing Catholic monasteries were either gone, destroyed, or just abandoned. Even in France, after the end of Napoleon's reign, Catholic monastic brewing and vineyards never really returned. But there was one group of Trappist brothers in Belgium, and it could be said they saved the Catholic monastic brewing tradition. The Brasserie de Rochefort at the Trappist Rochefort Abbey was the only known monastic brewery to have not ceased production during all of the troubles of the 16th, 17th, and 18th century. In 1836, a group of Trappists split off from de Rochefort, and they began an abbey in West Mall, and they also began brewing beer. The first beer that they brewed was described as light in alcohol and rather sweet. And 20 years later, West Mall Monastery added a second beer, a strong brown ale, which they called a double. And it is now considered the first Belgian-style double ale to be brewed in the world. In 1936, the brothers at West Mall brewed a very strong pale ale, which they called triple. Again, it's considered to be the first beer of that style to be brewed anywhere. Ooh. Damn. Let me tell you something about this Duvel. Whoo! I don't know if this is considered a double or a triple, but I've drank three of these in the last hour. And yeah, feels good. In 1838, a third Trappist monastic brewery was established in Belgium at the Abbey of St. Sixtus. In 1863, Chimay Trappist Brewing was established, perhaps the world's most famous brewer of Trappist ales. In 1931, the Abbey Notre Dame de Orvelle began brewing beer, and the newest and smallest of the Belgian Trappist breweries, Ackle Monastery, began brewing ales in 1998. There are 11 Trappist breweries in the world. There's six in Belgium, two in the Netherlands, and one each in Austria, Italy, and the United States. The Brothers of St. Joseph's Trappist Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts, produces about 4,000 barrels of Trappist ale each year, founded in 2013. <laughs> Guess what? I know a new destination when we get the RV, Marilee. We're calling up the Brothers of St. Joseph in Massachusetts for a visit in some of that legendary Benedictine hospitality. Oh, cheers. 
So you might be asking, what does it take for a beer to be considered a Trappist ale? Well, it must meet the following criteria, as established by the International Trappist Association in conference in 1997. The beer must be brewed within the walls of a Trappist monastery, either by the monks themselves or under their supervision. The brewery must be of secondary importance within the monastery, and it should witness to the business practices proper to a monastic way of life. In other words, they shouldn't sell it at an overly inflated price. They're not, it's not to make money. It's just to sustain the monastery. That was what St. Ben, Benedict preached in those early, early years. The brewery is not like and here we go. The brewery is not intended to be a profit-making venture. The income covers the living expenses of the monks and the maintenance of the buildings and the grounds. Whatever remains is donated to charity for social work and to help persons in need. Which reminds me, one of the great things that I mean I've ever read by Saint Benedict was judge a man by his deeds, not by his words. I always thought that was one of the greatest things ever said about religion. Judge a person by his deeds, not his words. That's St. Benedict. Anyway. Huh. The association, the Trappist Association, has legal standing, and it's got a logo which it gives um, the consumer some information and guarantees about the product. Trappist breweries are constantly monitored to assure the irreproachable quality of their beers. And if any brewery at all ever thinks about using the word Trappist on their ale, they can expect a call from the Brethren's Legal Council. In other words, don't f*** with the monks or their beer. Today, Trappist monks produce some of the most critically acclaimed beers on the market. St. Sixtus Trappist Brewery in West Veltern, Belgium, I think I said that, West Veltern, Westveltern, whatever, makes what is considered the best beer in the world. In 2012, they exported their beer, Westveltern 12, for the first time to the United States, and six packs sold on the open market for over $100. So, if the history of monks and the brewing of beer by the monks begins with St. Benedict, well then... We must go back to Benedict's birthplace, the Italian town of Norcia, where the tradition of beer and hospitality continues today, where a group of American monks practice what they call brewing evangelization. All right, I'm going for number four. Actually, I drank all the Duval. I now have a Boulevard Tank 7. It's also it's made by the same people, just in different places. This is their Belgian farmhouse-style ale. It's also bottle-conditioned, which means it's got a bit of yeast left in the bottle with it. It's about the same color as the Duvel. Let's see what the flavor's like, if there's a difference. Uh, it's about the same color. Got the same... Good head retention. 
same esters that uh, that banana apricot Belgian style yeast esters. Oh, they're, they're so good. It's a bit drier than the Duvel. I think I like it more. What's the alcohol on this? I know it's high. It's eight and a half too. It's the same as the Duvel. Woo! This is beer number four, folks. In an hour or less than an hour. So anyway, <clears throat> I was talking about beer evangelization, right? Yes, Boulevard Tank Seven Farmhouse Belgian Style Ale. Give it a go. It's delicious. Anyway, back to our friends, the Brewing Monks. In 2012, the eight, 18 monks, Americans, all of them, 18 American monks of the monastery of St. Benedict in Norcia, Italy, opened a brewery, and the brewing of Bira Norcia allows them to be financially self-sufficient. And it also helps them, as brewery director Father Nivikov explains, to preach the gospel without preaching the gospel. The fruit of their labors are Belgian-style beers brewed in Italy. And guess what? It's said that they're soon to be coming to America. We never expected people to appreciate it and enjoy it as much as they have, said Father Nivikov. A brewer, he continued, has to have always a little bit of hope. It's not just for his enjoyment, but to share with others. Father Nivikov went on to say, God does things that we don't always expect with what we make. He also added, Beer is a drink which isn't really necessary, but it brings a bit of joy to the hearts of those who drink it. We take our motto here at Beer and Norcia from a line from Psalm 106. Ut latificat cor. My Latin's terrible. Okay, I know it. But that translates to that the heart might be gladdened. I'm gladdening my heart here right now. Mm. Oh. Under the name Beer Inertia, the monastery brews and markets a Belgian blonde ale and a Belgian dark strong ale. Initially, the beer was brewed by the brethren to serve as a supplement for their time fasting during Lent when they would only eat one solid meal a day and by drinking down the good stuff, the monks get a dose of protein, B vitamins, potassium, antioxidants, and a nice healthy buzz. <laughs> the blonde ale is 6% alcohol and the dark is around 10. There aren't enough nutrients to completely replace what food they need, but it certainly doesn't hurt. And of course... It always takes the edge off of eating so little. <laughs> the monks at St. Benedict's Monastery in Norcia, Italy, began accepting orders in January for export to the United States. So keep an eye out for it in your specialty beer store. Bira Norcia, and that's uh, spelled N U R 
C-I-A. It looks like Nursia. It's Norcia is how it's pronounced. Uh, and while the monks' beer may be selling fast, they're part of a long, long, long timeline. A tradition of more than 1,500 years, beginning with a man named Benedict in a village in Italy, searching for the truth and wanting to assure hospitality. But, you know, isn't that what we're all really looking for? Truth, hospitality, friendship. Isn't that what life's about? I leave you tonight with the words of the patron saint of hop pickers and Belgian brewers, Saint Arnoldus of Soissons, Arnoldus of Soissons, a Benedictine abbot of the 11th century who penned, For man's sweat and God's love, beer came into the world. History episode 34 was written and produced by me, Alan Tatman. The technical director of history is Brian McGeorge. The marketing director of history is Tim. I'm not the bomber McVeigh of Mission Digital Marketing. History, the story of alcohol is a wild Irish production, all rights reserved, and is recorded. Blah, 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 blah. Keep talking, Alan. Uh, that's it, folks. Hey, sorry I didn't have new content for you this week. Uh, but I do have some good news. If you're uh, in mid-Missouri and you want to come out and see hear the uh, the talk down at the Loman Building on Saturday, uh, you come stop by the pub uh, before you head home. We have the Boulevard Tank Seven on draft right now. Uh, hopefully, it'll it'll last a while. We also have one of my favorites, Santa Fe's Adobe Igloo Winter Ale with the cocoa nibs and the slightly hinting of green chilies. It's absolutely delicious. Uh, so anyway, I've got an interview for you next week with uh, one of the breweries that I visited on my East Coast swing. And Tony and I are going to talk about how the craft brewers are dealing with this current government shutdown that we're dealing with here in the United States. So we'll have that for you next week. And I'm going to be heading to, like I said, Colorado. It uh, looks like I'm going to be going out the 23rd. Uh, I'll be there the night of the 23rd. And I'm going to be coming home around January 30th, 31st, something like that. Maybe a little later. Might, might, might hang out and stay for a couple more days. Just depends on what's going on with all my friends there. I'm not going to be driving the RV. I'm going to drive the car. So, uh, yeah. That's the way that goes. We are planning an RV trip in February. We're going to be heading down to the Texas Gulf Coast and working our way back through Louisiana, Mississippi, and up the Mississippi River Valley back to Missouri. Be gone about two and a half, three weeks. I'll let you know more about that, where we might be headed. And next week, I'll also tell you where I'm going to be visiting when I'm in Colorado. So uh, take us out of here, Jess. You've been listening to The Brews Traveler. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or check out our blog on website, thebrewstraveler.com. Cheers. Cheers, everybody. Yeah, I know I need to work on the blog. I haven't done a very good job with that. One of these days, I've got to stop procrastinating. Hey, 
Follow us over on Facebook and Instagram at the Bruise Traveler Podcast. Send me a message. Tell me what you think of the show. Also, I want to hear from you. What breweries must I go see in 2019? Just go over to the Facebook page and let me know. Please go over to iTunes. Give us a five-star rating and a glowing review. It would mean so much. The soundtrack for The Bruce Traveler is so graciously provided by our friends, Gaelic Storm. Go over to their website, gaelicstorm.com, and check out what's coming up for them in the new year. Marketing consultation provided by Mission Digital Marketing. So until next week, if I don't see you at a pub or tap room, I'll see you right back here on the podcast. Take care of each other. Take care of the earth. It's everything we've got in Merrily, as always, honey. You are the measure of my dreams. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, and so long for just a while. no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. St. Francis of Assisi, born Giovanni di Pietro di Bernardone, circa 1181, Assisi, Duchy of Spoleto, Holy Roman Empire, died 3rd of October, 1226, Assisi, Umbria, the Papal States.